following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I want to acknowledge, too, that talking about mental health is uh, not easy. This is, uh, can be a really painful topic, a very personal topic. And uh, so I want to make sure that um, you all know that I'm happy to, to talk about this further afterward. Um, thank you. If anything um, is brought up for you, um, I want to make myself available in that way. But this is something I've thought a lot about. Um, actually got my clinical degree in psychology at a seminary, which in my field is very rare. Um, when I moved to Rochester to do my internship, everybody expected me to be a nun. They're like, you're from a seminary? Where's your habit? Um, it's like, no, I'm just a pastor's kid. But um, I loved going and getting my clinical degree at a seminary because it provided an opportunity to talk about people, I think, in a unique way than other uh, clinical programs tend to do. We talked a lot about the whole person um, that includes our spirituality, and we talked about ways that we could heal the whole person. So, of course, all through grad school, I was just so excited to get to work with people and be a clinician and help with those that distorted thinking, that you know, disturbed emotions, those broken hearts and broken relationships. And so I worked really hard and I got all my clinical hours and I got my degree and I was going to heal the world. That was my goal. (laughs) And of course, in actually beginning to practice, I learned that this is a really messy process. Um, It's not a simple process. And I'm grateful for everyone that walks through my door and sits in front of me and practices being vulnerable in that way. Um, It takes a special type of courage to do that. And I'm just grateful for the process and the part of the healing process that I I am, though I acknowledge that um, the work that I do as a, a mental health professional is just a piece of the puzzle. And so today I wanted to talk about how we as a church can be a very important part of a person's healing journey. Therapy actually has some of its roots in Christian monastic tradition of self-examination and confession or sharing with others um, what you have observed or what you have prayed about in your confession, about maybe thoughts or behaviors that uh, manifest in some sort of pain or suffering. And these are both, both really important aspects of one's healing journey, to practice the self-examination, which can be really difficult to do, can be really painful to do, to look at parts of ourselves that are um, either um, manifesting themselves in suffering or causing us pain in some way. Um, and it also takes a lot of then vulnerability to then share that, be willing to share that with someone else. Um, something that, as much as it can be a, a, a powerful practice, it can also potentially be a dangerous practice if when you are confessing or sharing what's going on for you, it is not met with grace or mercy and instead is met with shame And in fact, this process of both self-examination and confession 
can become so permeated with shame. Right? That's what makes people so afraid to either become introspective or share with others because there is a language of shame that has become internalized. And maybe we, without even knowing it, pass it on to one another. And that can be so harmful. And in fact, the work I do, I specialize in post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, particularly among people who've um, experienced violence in their relationships. And the message I hear over and over is, I must have done something. I must have done something to deserve this. So that, to me, is incredibly painful, but an incredibly common message that manifests itself in all sorts of mental health issues. I must have done this because I'm the one who's experiencing this pain and this suffering. So there must be something wrong with me. How did this happen? How did the language and the practice of self-examination and confession become synonymous with shame? How did needing someone to talk to equate to there being something uniquely wrong with you? That you are uniquely broken in some way. And so that you should probably just figure this out yourself. Let's think about the common narrative when someone is struggling with any health issue. We tend to ask the question, well, how did it happen? In the story of Jesus healing the man born blind, the disciples say, Rabbi, who has sinned? This man or his father that he, or his parents that he was born blind? Inherent in this message or this question is the idea that health is dependent on morality. And that if one is unhealthy then they must have some sort of moral defect. It makes sense then that a common question for mental illness is, whose fault is this? And if someone is to blame, then it must be me. And then since it's me I'm talking about, I must be to blame and I must figure this out on my own. And so we have a tendency to want to hide our pain and hide this perceived ugliness, our perceived brokenness from one another, from God, from ourselves. So let's see how morality or this sense of personal failure holds up to something like major depressive disorder. So in a sentence, major depressive disorder is a genetic and neurochemical disorder requiring a strong environmental trigger whose characteristic manifestation is an inability to enjoy sunsets. Hmm. I don't hear personal failure there. But the language of individualism has so permeated our culture that we take a complex interaction like genetics, neurochemistry, and environment, and we say... Get it together, man. Right? Just stop feeling that way. Of 
We make it so the individual is solely responsible for the pain that has manifested in their life. So imagine then how harmful it is to say that mental illness is rooted in moral or personal failure. Imagine how harmful it is for the person struggling and suffering with depression. A disorder that often manifests itself in isolation and withdrawal and hopelessness. An inability to find pleasure. We as humans, we tend to be able to find pleasure even in some of our darkest moments. So imagine a disorder that makes it so everything feels really bleak and gray and you feel numb and really cut off. Are we in some way perpetuating this message that you are other with your what's going on for you and you need to figure this out on your own? Do we, per, do we, um, are we the ones that are communicating that message? It's also important to acknowledge that in any of these disorders that I'm talking about, that that language becomes internalized, that language that says that I should be isolated, right? They're, we call them distorted thoughts. Another common disorder is anxiety. Chronic stress actually plays a huge role in anxiety and the way it manifests itself. Chronic stress can actually make the amygdala, the part of the brain that we call our our fear center, it can actually make it bigger. And in that process of experiencing chronic stress, a person will actually have what we call generalized fear. So fear no longer becomes... um, contextual, but it comes, becomes generalized. So imagine the pain then when the message, whether it's coming from the outside or coming from the inside, is saying, this is your fault. This is your personal failure. We know with both depression and anxiety that social connection is incredibly powerful and can be incredibly healing. In rat studies, um, if a rat is in a cage and getting shocked um, out and essentially having an experience that's outside of its control, if it's isolated in that cage, the uh, rat develops an ulcer, which is a process uh, that can happen in the inflammatory process of of stress reactivity. But if a rat has a friend in the cage and they're grooming each other, and he's still getting those shocks, he's less likely to get that ulcer. That's sweet. Little rats grooming each other. (laughs) Or you may have heard of a famous experiment uh, done in the 70s called Rat Park. Okay, about substance abuse. Um, This... uh, Researcher in the 70s wanted to expand on experiments that were done with substances, uh, morphine, um, in the 50s and 60s, where um, rats isolated in cages were given an option to either drink plain water or drink water laced with morphine. And what they found is that the rats, by and large, kept going back to the water laced with morphine. And so the message was, 
drugs are going to kill you, man. If you get, if you get, if you use them, you will get hooked. That became the message. And Dr. Alexander wanted to challenge that uh, notion. And so what he did was he built Rat Park. It was a rat mecca with everything a rat could need. And there was like, it was like 200 times the size of a regular rat cage. And there were 20 rats and they were all, you know, doing what rats do. And they had the wheels and the, the food. And, and they also had the plain water and the water laced with morphine available to them. But guess what? They, by and large, chose the plain water. And in the control group was rats isolated in cages that were actually forced to continue to drinking, to continue to drink the water laced with morphine. And when they were integrated into Rat Park, they started to choose the plain water. So there's something incredibly powerful about the process of social connection. The prominent theory of suicide and why people kill themselves is threefold. That one, people have um, acquired capability, which means that they have exposure uh, to the means with which they used to die. They have a high sense of burdensomeness. I am a burden on my family and my friends. And third, they have a low sense of belonging. And of these three, a low sense of belonging is the strongest factor related to suicide. I want to be clear here that obviously there's a common connection in all of these disorders that social connection is incredibly important. And I want to emphasize that it's very much bi-directional, that people can also in- interpret and internalize a message that may or may not actually be there. And so what is our role as a church? Health is not isolated to the individual. I think this is what the message in in mental health is saying over and over. It's not isolated to the individual. And the experience of dis-ease and disorder are so very much rooted in a sense of disconnection. Wendell Berry says, the community is the smallest unit of health. The community is the smallest unit of health. To speak of the health of an isolated individual is a contradiction. In other words, our health is somehow linked to one another, to our relationship in our community and to God. So how does the church treat this then? Has the church been harmful in some ways for people with mental illness? I visited a church once. I was church hunting. And during the service I could tell this was not the church for me, but I was going to stay for the sermon. And the sermon happened to be about mental health and the church. And I was like, sweet. And so I was excited, and the pastor proceeded to say, Oh, poor you, you have depression, boo-hoo. Get on your knees and pray to Jesus. You don't need a therapist, you need Jesus. 
And I was like, okay, <laughs> I need to go. <laughs> Where's the exit? <laughs> I think that's actually a common message that a lot of people hear. You don't need a therapist, or you don't need to do anything else. You just need to pray harder. What we're communicating here is that your healing is exclusively dependent on your personal relationship with Jesus and that religious belief and behavior are the cause of better health. So how damaging is it for someone who's suffering from chronic depression or chronic anxiety to hear that all they need to do is believe better? This is, again, an example of how individualism and this concept of personal failure breeds isolation. Why do we turn away from people who suffer? Why are we in some way potentially communicating that you should be isolated? Let's take a moment to consider why you may turn away from people with mental illness. I propose that we turn away from people who suffer because it provides a mirror to our own suffering. It provides a mirror to our own limitations. And we don't want to look at that because we don't want to suffer. Well, good luck. It's only when we allow ourselves to see the size of the cloth of the human experience where both suffering and joy are present that enables us to acknowledge that our lives are interwoven with one another and that we are both healers and people in need of healing. So how do we do this? How do we as a church participate in the healing journey for one another? Let's first consider the Christian tradition of healing. Last week, Marielle talked about the man born blind, and I'll have us turn to that again. It's John 9, John 9, 1 through 7, on page 871. As he walked along... He saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work, God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Then he went and washed and came back and was able to see. What we see here is a close connection between the Christian commitment to be with and to care for the suffering and the Christian virtue of hospitality to the stranger. 
We must read the story of Jesus' healing the man born blind through the lens of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The definitive sign that God's kingdom has come and that it has triumphed over sin, sickness, and death. Jesus' presence truly heals by overcoming the sin of exclusion and alienation. The man born blind from birth was also cut off from society. He was cut off from integration into the community of Israel. His blindness was his blindness was considered a moral defect that meant that he was impure and unable to participate in daily life in Israel. But the real blindness was the blindness of the people who were excluding him. In other words, the real sin in light of Jesus' establishment of the new inclusive humanity, that is, citizenship in the kingdom of God, is the sin of those who exclude from their presence the man who is suffering who had been separated from the people of God. In light of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit makes something of the love of Jesus available to the community of God's people, which allows us a new way of living together. A new way which includes caring for those who suffer. The main point I want to make about healing is that it is truly a story of inclusion versus exclusion. Healing is a journey that we are all on. And it looks different for each of us. Healing has much less to do with just our belief and our behavior and a lot to do with being with one another and the concept of compassion, which means being with others in their suffering. What we're saying in being with, is you don't need to be at any other point in your journey. And I don't have to be at any other point in mine. And yes, we want to be whole. We want to be restored. And we also don't want to suffer. But healing, at least while we're here, in a world that we recognizes broken, healing does not mean that we will no longer suffer. Nor does it mean that it is only once we are healed that we can participate in community or ask for help. For we are all made in God's image. And we are all broken. Can we say to one another and can we internalize this message that we are all beautifully broken and beautiful and broken. If suffering is rooted in exclusion, then healing is to know that we belong in sickness and in health to God and to one another. That we belong in sickness and in health to God and to one another. Refusing to acknowledge that we are all healers and in need of healing communicates that some are well and some are ill. Therefore, we refuse to join others in their suffering because somehow it takes away from our living. 
until we can acknowledge that mental health is not something we achieve, but it is a longing we all have, and that both wellness and illness are present in each of us, then surely we are lost and we are not representing the kingdom of God. Therefore, we must create a safe space for people who suffer with mental illness. What often makes a mental health issue different from a physical disability, not always, but often, is that it's quiet. It can be silent. You can pass someone and say, how are you? And they can say, fine. And you'll never know. So we have to practice two things. We have to practice presence and prayer. The practice of presence, being present with one another, is a practice of hospitality. It is a practice of being willing to listen when people are suffering. Being willing to be open, not only to their suffering, but to your own. And therefore, you create a safe space that says, we are both on this journey. And I'm willing to walk alongside you. I'm willing to be with you in this process. Prayer is the practice of connecting our hearts to the one whose love is inclusive for all of us. To the God who says, I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Reaching out to others in your community or a mental health professional does not mean that there is something uniquely broken about you. Instead, it says, this is a time where I'm practicing my need for healing, just as I practice being a healer. The presence of the kingdom is, first of all, when we participate in the act of communion and celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. It is then in the community itself, as an extension of the fact that those gathered to eat and drink Jesus' body and blood had themselves actually become God's presence to the world. Therefore, the locus of the healing presence of Jesus has become the community that has gathered in his name. The locus of the healing presence of Jesus has become the community that has gathered in his name. So I'd like to pray for us that we can become that community of healing. Let's pray. Lord, help us to bring your healing presence to one another and to the stranger. Help us each to acknowledge that we are fearfully and wonderfully and beautifully made. Help us to create a space where healing is possible. Help us to be open, courageous, and willing. Help us to reach out both as one who suffers and one who is willing to be with those who suffer. Help, help us each to go first that we may be the one who reaches out whether we need 
are in need of care or a one that is willing to care for. Lord, help us to know that you have made us and you will carry us. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.